Uh, well, there's a lot of misunderstanding, isn't there? There's a lot of incomprehension. There's a lot of not getting it in today's Bible reading. Uh, let's review. In scene 1, verses 1 to 16, the disciples don't understand. They don't understand why Jesus would even contemplate going back to Judea, a place where he is in great danger. They don't understand when Jesus speaks about Lazarus falling asleep. And they don't understand that actually they're on a mission, a mission to raise Lazarus from the dead, a mission with a purpose that God's Son may be glorified in this sign and that they might see and believe. In scene 2, verses 17 to 37, um, Mary and Martha and the crowd of people who've arrived at their house in order to join in the grieving and the burial rites, they can't understand why Jesus delayed. Given that it was in his power to both get there earlier and to heal him from his sickness. They can't understand why, given this urgency, he'd turn up late, and not just late, but too late. In scene 3, verses 38 to 44, Martha can't understand why Jesus wants the stone at the entrance to the tomb. Why would he want that removed? Um, and she didn't understand why, because she didn't understand what Jesus had spoken to her earlier. In scene 4, uh, verses 45 to 54, the Jewish religious establishment in Jerusalem understand perfectly, or at least they think they do. Um, they understand perfectly the political implications of letting yet another, another runaway messianic movement happen and in the superiority of their political understanding, they totally and completely misunderstand the sign. That scene in particular is rich in irony. Four scenes of incomprehension and misunderstanding. As it happens, we've, we've, we've actually met uh, Mary and Martha before, but not in John's Gospel. Uh, John knows that we, we've met them before um, in Mark's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. John knows that we know the story of perfume being poured on Jesus' head a week before he was crucified, Mark chapter 14, even though he actually hasn't told us that story. Not yet, he will in the next chapter. But he knows that we know it from the other Gospels, so we can refer to it. And he knows that we know the story of uh, Jesus' visit to Mary and Martha's house and that we know it from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Martha, 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 Martha. Martha was worried about so many things, all the distractions of getting lunch ready for this huge crowd who turned up at her house, and as was the traditional role for the woman of the household, she had to get lunch ready for everybody. But actually, only one thing was needed, and Mary, her sister, knew what it was. As unconventional as it was, Mary, a woman, sat at Christ's feet, listening to his teaching as though she was a man. 
once again, when Jesus and his disciples get to Bethany, here today in John's Gospel, once again, actually, we see two quite different reactions from Mary and from Martha. Here, Martha, again, the conventional one of the two sisters, she does what you would have expected uh, her to do, socially speaking. When somebody important comes to visit you, you go out to meet them. The more important the person, the further you go. Martha obeys that convention. Going out to meet Jesus, offering Jesus a traditional and perfectly respectable, respectful welcome. Even so, she's bitterly, bitterly disappointed. If you'd come, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Martha, um, being a a good Jewish girl who believes God's word, she, she knows how history will end. It'll end with the resurrection of the dead, the wicked rising to eternal condemnation, the righteous to eternal glory. She is on safe ground here. We already know that Jesus shares this same belief. But then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Um, In in the Greek, uh, these words, I am, grammatically they're made emphatic in in two quite different ways. It's as though in Greek the words I am are in capitals and in bold. I am the resurrection and the life. And in John's Gospel, Jesus makes several emphatic I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Um, the point would not be lost on a Jewish audience because God's personal name in the Old Testament Yahweh means, I am who I am, or I am. Christ's statement and question to Martha cannot be something that Martha could have been prepared for. I mean, how do you make sense of the words, I am the resurrection and the life? How do you make sense of those words? That that the gift of life is the gift of God's alone. And the Bible insists that we believe in God alone, having no other gods except him. That's commandment number one and commandment number two. And how does one live according to the Old Testament? Well, in the fear of Yahweh, in the fear of the Lord. This is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom is life. So who is Jesus claiming to be? He's claiming to be Yahweh, the Lord. He's claiming God's ground as his own. If you believe in me, Jesus says, you will live forever. Death cannot touch you, even if, from the world's perspective, you seem to die. Only God could say that. Yet Jesus asks Martha, 
do you believe this? Yes, Lord, is her reply. But then what she does is she supplies for herself the content of her own belief. Yes, Lord, I I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And the thing about all of those titles, Christ, Messiah, Son of God, the coming one, they are all Jewish ways of saying the same thing. They are, the, 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 the Jews are waiting for the Messiah, the anointed king, the promised son of David, the king of the Jews, and they're all titles for the Messiah. David was the Messiah, an anointed king, Christ. Solomon was his son, and as an anointed king, a son of God, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel reigning from Jerusalem. And Judas Maccabeus was a deliverer. The coming one, the Savior, the one sent from God. But David, David, David's the benchmark for messianic spirituality in the Old Testament. But David never said anything remotely like, I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, if he had, people would have laughed at him before stoning him to death. Martha is trying to believe. And she takes a small step of faith, but she hasn't really. What she can't do is categorically affirm that she does believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, the one, and that the one who believes in him will live, even though they die, and that whoever lives by believing in him will never die. That she cannot categorically affirm. So she just says what she believes, but it's a step of faith. She trusts Jesus, but she doesn't get him. And perhaps unable to bear the awkwardness of this encounter, she appears to flee. And she appears to go and tell Mary to get out there and take over from me with respect to the welcoming. Even though we know nothing about Jesus specifically asking for Mary, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, we don't know. What we do know is that Jewish rabbis refused to instruct women. Jesus, on the other hand, welcomed female disciples. And, and um, Mary herself had earlier accepted that freedom to sit at his feet and listen, and she'd received praise from Jesus for doing that. Perhaps Martha, the, her sister, knows that the teacher requesting Mary's presence by name will be an irresistible offer to Mary because Mary needs to get out there Mary needs to be spurred out of her seat and to get out to go and see Jesus because her behavior up until now has been breathtakingly rude. To, to, to stay seated upon hearing that a visitor was coming, verse 20, and to not go out to meet him was to withhold courtesy so obviously as to be a deliberate insult. So, so Mary's not, not budging to see Jesus, and Jesus is not budging to see Mary. He stays where he is. Why? Actually, I'm not sure. As in other places, Jesus, sometimes he just waits for people to come to him rather than going to where they are, even, if he could, even though he can get to where they are. What is he doing? Perhaps Jesus is honoring her rejection of him. She's allowed to do that. He won't search her out. If she's decided to reject him, he'll accept that. 
But now, encouraged or perhaps deceived by her sister into going, Mary does go, and falling at his feet, weeping, she gives full vent to her complaint. You could have prevented my brother's death, but you didn't. I can't believe you've allowed this to happen to us. She can't understand what it means for Jesus to be so full of godly power and yet to withhold it from them in their time of greatest need. In, in response to Mary's complaint, Jesus offers no explanation of himself, no defense, but rather asks where they have laid him. And the reply is, come and see. And we arrive now at the middle of the story, the climax of the story, the eye of the storm, the center of the hurricane, and on either side of the center of the storm, in verses uh, 33 and 38, there is a word that is very difficult to translate or even know exactly what John meant by it. The Pew Bible in your hands translates it as Jesus being deeply moved. Verse 33 when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then on the other side, verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. The, the Greek words translated deeply moved move, is very difficult to translate. In terms of its original meaning, the word refers to the snorting noise an angry horse makes. Um, it's, um, if you don't know Greek, but you want to spot difficult words, just get lots of different English translations and see where they vary. This is one such place. Different English translations translate it very variously. Um, in some English translations, it's translated as deeply moved or groaning or terribly upset, or intensely troubled, or greatly disturbed, perturbed, deeply troubled. Um, all those translations, it's very cerebral, isn't it? It's all very, very clinical. And it refers, obviously, to a word which is by no means clinical, the snorting noise an noise angry horse makes. Deeply troubled is the kind of phrase a headmaster might use of a schoolboy whose behavior is out of control. Oh, it's clear that he is a deeply troubled young man. In other words, we don't have the vaguest idea what's going on in his head. And we haven't even troubled ourselves to try and find out. <laughs> but we find this strange word deeply moved on either side of verse 35. The center of the story, Jesus wept. Now, in John's gospel, there is no Gethsemane prayer. You remember that prayer that Jesus prayed to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified? That time of intense suffering, fear, and anguish. Um, Jesus was beside himself. He said to Peter, James, and John, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. And Luke tells us that Jesus, praying in anguish, was sweating profusely. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was in emotional agony. 
But John knows that we know that story. He chooses not to include it. Instead, in his account, he gives us a different garden and a different picture of Jesus faced with death and Jesus in emotional agony. And he cries. Um, This might be a little bit mysterious to us. It amuses me that it's mysterious to most of the commentators I read. I mean, after all, we we all know that Jesus is about to to raise Lazarus from the dead. The story will end happily. Jesus knows that. So why is he crying? Why is he so distressed? Well, I think that perhaps we see two things simultaneously. Jesus' response as a human being and Jesus' response as God with us. Jesus as a human being. Jesus comes to this tomb, I recognize this, Uh, Jesus comes to this tomb as a rabbi, that's the Jewish equivalent of an Anglican minister. Uh, He has a job to do, a job that others are expecting him to do. I've done funerals, I've done funerals for people I knew well, I've done funerals for people I've never met. And I know at funerals, Anglican ministers pull themselves together. They hold it together. They've got a job to do, and others need them to stay strong. I was (laughs) I think I I need to hold myself together at the moment. (laughs) I was at a family funeral a few weeks ago. Uh, A funeral for Michelle, Joe's aunt, who died aged 55 after a four-year illness, after she died of bowel cancer. Um, Four members of her... Four members of her family gave eulogies. The one who was to speak first was Michelle's brother. Then, after him, Michelle's three adult children. But the brother could not speak. He couldn't even stand. At the lectern, his grief overwhelmed him. And in his grief, he collapsed, sobbing. So the three adult children spoke, and the eulogies were astonishingly good. Best I've ever heard. Um, their eulogies were touching, sensitive, moving, and in places really, really funny. The three kids were bright and articulate. But for me, the most articulate moment of all, in the entire funeral, the thing which spoke most truly was her brother's grief. His collapse said it all the death of Michelle, an unacceptable, unbearable tragedy. Well, Jesus' friend is dead. Yes, to be sure. In his head, Jesus knows what's about to happen. But in his heart, he feels his grief. His friend is dead. And he expresses it. Jesus doesn't hold it together. He doesn't 
pull himself together in order to get on with the job at hand. He takes a few moments to listen, to listen to himself, to hear his own pain, and to express it. Jesus is good at listening to God. Jesus is good at listening to others. And Jesus is good at listening to himself. And this is true humanity. Jesus is good at listening to himself. Jesus as God with us. God is crying. God is in emotional agony. In Jesus we see God's deep, deep pain and grief over the human predicament. That death comes to cut them off from each other, to cut us off from him, to cut us off from all that is living and good. The death of any human being, an unacceptable, unbearable tragedy. Jesus, the one who shows us humanity and the one who shows us divinity without contradiction or compromise. So they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Well, Jesus is just about to call Lazarus up out of the tomb. But before he does that, he speaks aloud his prayer. And there are many things about this prayer that are startling to me. The most startling thing is the simple fact that in his prayer, he doesn't mention Lazarus, Mary, or Martha. That's extraordinary. He didn't pray, Father, please raise Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't mention Lazarus. Nor, Father, please have mercy on your servants Mary and Martha. That would have been a great intercessional prayer. Nor, nor does he pray, Father, remember us, your servants. Please hear our prayer. No, 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 suddenly Jesus prays, and as we listen to this extraordinary prayer, suddenly we have a totally new perspective on the entire incident. You see, long before Mary and Martha had entered into this conversation, the son was speaking to the father about Lazarus. And the father was listening to the son. And the son knew what to do because he was listening to the father. Um, You see, when, when Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus, when they prayed to Jesus saying, please heal our sick brother, when they sent word on behalf of their brother, they were entering into a conversation that was already taking place within the triune community of the Godhead. When, when Mary and Martha asked Jesus to save their brother, they were simply echoing things that God was already saying to himself. And this is extraordinary. Because they asked Jesus to intervene, and from their point of view, he did nothing. From from their perspective, darkness and death are in control of this from beginning to end. When they pray to Jesus, then things move from bad to worse. Their brother went from being sick to being dead. We would have understood 
if they had doubted whether or not God listens, whether or not he hears us, whether or not he even cares. But actually, it was, it was the other way around. When they offered up their prayers right at the start, they were simply joining in to an existing conversation. Our God is a God who listens to us. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And what we see is that Lazarus listened to Jesus. How could Lazarus listen to Jesus when he's dead? Well, because whoever hears Christ's words and believes him who sent him has already crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Well, Jesus has made some extraordinary claims we now see that these claims weren't empty. Jesus is God with us. This is the seventh of John's seven signs. The, the function of a sign is to point to something else. If you arrive at a sign that says Perth, that way you haven't arrived yet in Perth. So, this, the function of this sign is actually to point to some greater reality. What is that greater reality? Well, the sign points to the cross, and it points to the cross in several ways. It is at the cross that God will do something about his own grief at human death. It is an unacceptable, unbearable tragedy whenever a human being dies, and Jesus did something about that by dying. This sign, today's sign, glorified the Son, demonstrating his power, his authority, and his character. But at the cross, then we see the full glory of the Son. The performance of this sign was accompanied by much misunderstanding and incomprehension. Nobody really got it. Well, they couldn't have. That's because actually Jesus and his work can only be understood once you've got to the destination. Once you've seen the reality, then you understand how the signs pointed to the reality. What is the reality? The reality is the cross. We have that light so we can understand the sign. But Mary and Martha and the disciples, they didn't. Not on that day. Well, the Bible insists, the Bible insists, although we find it very hard to believe, that if there are tears, then that's the middle of a story, not the end. Weeping may last for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Wailing will be turned into dancing, and those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. And now the Bible insists that if we believe in Jesus and keep believing in him in the face of things going from bad to worse, we will see the glory of God. So in concluding this sermon, I'd like, us, I'd like to lead us in two prayers. Um, Jesus said to Martha, 
I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Uh, through John, Jesus now asks us that same question. And I think the best response we can give is, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. I believe you are the one. And anyone who believes in you will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in you will never die. So let's do that. I'm going to pray aloud and give you the opportunity to repeat my words uh, silently in your heart. And I'd like you to do it silently um, to give a sense of privacy because you may not be ready to pray this prayer or you may not want to pray this prayer. But for those who would, um, let's say it, uh, repeat after me silently in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the resurrection.